Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father God, we thank you that we have this chance to, to not only just be back in this room together, which, which feels pretty great, Lord, but to be gathered together as a bunch of people who have been adopted into the family of God. And Lord, as we come and as we seek to rely on you, as we seek to, to hear, hopefully, Lord, from you, Lord, we pray that your word would do what you've designed it to do, and it would cut into us, that it would nurture us, it would expose to us the things that you don't find pleasing, and it would lead us to your infinite grace. Lord, you have been so good to us. And so, Lord, we, we take this time to entrust ourselves not to the preaching of some guy, but, Lord, do, Lord, we want to entrust ourselves to your word, to let your word correct us and teach us and shape us. And so, Lord, help us to rely on you. Help us to grow in you for your glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, in the history of film, there may be no greater Oscar snub than what happened in 1994, when a wonderfully written, directed, and produced drama that year not only just didn't win the Oscar, but wasn't even nominated with extraordinary acting, complex plot that brought in action, suspense, elements of betrayal, romance, comedy, and brought it all together in, in a beautifully orchestrated way. And, and you combine that with the cultural significance the film had not only in its time, but has continued to have even to this day. It is an absolute travesty that little rascals was not given the notoriety it deserved. Early in this dramatic epic, and I will debate anyone who calls it anything else than that, we are introduced to a key institution within the Little Rascals universe, and that is the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Now, I don't condone the name of the club. I'm not endorsing that at all. But this club is, is what binds this group of, we'll call them rascals for lack of a better word. It, can, it, it bonds them together. And they've, they've formed this club out of their shared experience. And, it's, and this club has taken their doctrine and turned it into values that bring them together, that keep them together, that they hold each other accountable to. And that, that, namely, that experience is the, the dreaded fear of cooties. But that unique experience has brought them together. Now, we are obviously brought together by a much deeper experience, and that is the gospel. But it, this is a tough bridge, but I crossed it. Um, <laughs> because I see in that film, these guys, like, they'll do everything to protect their community and protect the values of their community as they come together. They recite what's brought them together. They recite that. And we come together for something obviously much deeper, much more dear, much more worthy, and that is that the gospel has brought us together. 
that we are here this morning, and you're here for, for, we'll just throw out a variety of different ways. You're either here this morning because a long time ago you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, you made Jesus your Lord, you had your heart regenerated and became a child of God, and there's nowhere else you would rather be. And so you're here because the gospel has had a lifelong impact on you. That's one extreme. Another extreme is you're here because you are desiring for a lifelong impact to start occurring in your life, and you've heard about the gospel, and you want to hear more of it, and then there's a whole bunch of us that are anywhere in between. But it is the gospel that has brought us together. It's not a new air conditioning system. It's not my amazing film critique, but it is indeed the gospel. The mercy of God enacted through Christ has changed us from being God's enemies to being God's children. And that change happened through God mercifully and graciously opening our eyes so we could see our sin, repent of it. And Paul's argument throughout Romans 12, where we are still this morning and will be for a few more weeks, as we look at what it means to be a church that gathers well, Paul's argument throughout Romans 12 is that because of the deep, soul-altering mercy and merciful love of God, we need to act in a way that is shaped by and informed by the gospel. That when we as believers gather, we are guided and directed by the gospel in such a way that our conduct ought to be continually and consistently reflecting the gospel, not only to one another, but to any who spectate us from the outside. That we are unified by the gospel. And what we're going to see this morning is that gospel unification requires a love that's completely different than what the world offers. And so as Paul moves more and more into this marks of gospel community and what it means to be in a gospel community, he, he, he gets going in with love. Last week, Pastor Adam did a great job going through the gifts so that we are members of one another and that we use our gifts to serve each other graciously just as God has graciously given us. And now we go into into interpersonal communication and conduct. And we start in verse 9. Read verses 9 and 10 with me, if you will. <clears throat> Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. When Christians gather together, we reflect to each other and to the world the very love that first made us and brought us into the family of God. So as we gather, we do so with love that is on brand. Let your love be genuine. It seems obvious. Paul's just telling them, don't be superficial. Can we just all not be superficial? But he doesn't go with some sort of plea. He just goes with the positive command, let love be genuine. And here at Westchester, our mission is experiencing God's love, extending God's love from 1 John 4, 11. 
that we would, the same love God has given us, that we would be freely giving that to one another. And so as we are experiencing and extending the love of God, how can that be anything but genuine? How can it be anything but fully sincere? And the ESV translates it genuine. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that we are to love without dissemination. That our love should not be pretend, it should not be inauthentic, it should be in no way watered down, but in its purest form. The doctor says this, your whole conduct is to be governed by the kind of loving outlook which characterizes God's outlook upon you. Let me say that again. Your whole conduct as we interact as believers, as we come together, as we do ministry, even as we go to things like quarterly business meetings, as exciting and enthralling as those are, that our whole conduct should be governed by the kind of loving outlook which characterizes God's outlook upon you. He goes on to say, it is unconditional love, love without reservation. Love is totalitarian. We are to regard ourselves, therefore, in terms of love and within the terms of this whole relationship of love, love to God, love to neighbor. What does it mean for us then to have a loving outlook which is characterized by God's outlook upon us? It means that as we come together as a group of believers, knowing that we also come together as a group of people who sin frequently by nature and by choice, that we have a love to one another that endures hardship, that endures suffering, that even overlooks an offense, that appeals to grace, that lets Christ carry the whole burden of our sin. I find myself in agreement with Lloyd-Jones as he continues his argument in Romans 12 that to be genuine in a love that does not contain any dissemination, we need to first love God genuinely and then love each other genuinely. That this is a, a for us to come together and be able to, with our whole heart and our whole being, sincerely love one another, extend grace to one another, care for one another, go on to the, the continuing commands out of this of, of, of abhorring evil, holding fast to what is good, brotherly affection and outdoing one another in zeal, that first of all, we have to love our Lord genuinely. And if I am not loving the Lord genuinely, I'm going to start falling flat on a lot of these other things. I'm going to burn out. I'm, going to, I'm just going to come to a stop, unable to go on my own. Lloyd-Jones says that we should take seriously Jesus' words, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Let our love for God be genuine not only in daily routine and a, an emotional singing, but by a, a life marked with affectionate obedience. That's very different than dutiful obedience, where I have to do these things so that God loves me. The affectionate obedience comes from a heart that says, because God has loved me, I will willingly and even desirously, to the best of my ability, walk in his ways instead of my own. 
Jones says that love is something that always shows itself in conduct and in action. It is not a mere sentiment. It is not weak, but very strong. It is a carrying out of the law, a fulfilling of the commandments of God. It is not to do the commandments to do the commandments, but loving the Lord, walking in the commandments naturally flows out of that. I love God, how could I not love the creation he has put around me? I love God, how could I not care for the poor? I love the Lord, how could I not forgive this person who has wronged me? I love the Lord, how could I not share my faith? I love the Lord, how could I not seek justice? I love the Lord, how could I not care about the nations who do not yet know his name? I love the Lord, how could I not care about my brother and sister who I worship with nearly every week? When we feel our affections for one another slipping or tempted to dry out, we need to seek the Lord first. We need to seek to understand more deeply His love for us as well as to grow in our expression of love for Him. As we do so, a natural effect of growing in our love for God and growing in our love for the things God loves will occur, especially his people. How could I not love someone that Jesus has died for? How could I not love someone with whom my room may be right next to in the mansion in glory? Wouldn't that be a funny twist of irony by the Lord? It is not enough to love one another. We need to, to, to weed out and detest the things that would keep us from that love. This, this kind of genuine love, this is the most desired love to receive. But sometimes it can be pretty scary to give that love or even receive that love. That if someone's offering me a genuine love, like sometimes, if, depending on our background, we don't know what to do with that. Are they wanting something from me? Can I trust this? But I want to say that this love, as difficult as it is to give, as scary as it is to give, as difficult as it can be to invite or receive, and as scary as those things can be, it is absolutely possible by the Lord. And it is only possible long-term through the Lord. We may get flashes of a genuine love in the world, but fickleness will be re revealed every time. Give it suffering, give it time. But when we give suffering and time to the Lord, He doesn't reveal our fickleness, but instead He builds treasure within us. And He builds depth within us. And as a church suffers together, as a church endures together, as a church engages in ministry together, an amazing thing happens where genuine love for one another shows its fruit.
And so as we love one another, we seek the Lord. And we seek the Lord by, in part by being loyal to holiness. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. This is a really interesting phrase. Because if I was writing Romans under Chuck inspiration, I would probably say, let love be genuine. Don't fake it. You know, just be honest in your affection to one another. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is infinitely better than the inspiration of Chuck, amen, <laughs> says, says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Things, actions, mindsets, and affections are to be hated or held on to based on their goodness in the eyes of God. In the issues of evil and sin, there is no room for nuance. Don't miss how strongly worded this is. Abhor what is evil. It's not enough to say, I'm not, I'm not happy about that, but we have to abhor it. We have to hate our evil. We ought to detest it while clinging to the goodness of God. Richard Sibbs says we need to see the odiousness of our sin. We need to see how foul it is. To be disgusted by it. Again, this starts first and foremost by building our affection for the Lord. If I'm not building my affection for the Lord, the world is going to seem awfully tolerable and maybe even worse, desirable. But we detest our sin. Now, this, this phrase, abhor what is evil, it's a pretty broad term. There's a lot of things that are evil. And likewise, there's a lot of things that are good as we seek to cleave to what is good. But within Romans 12 and within this section, within these two verses we're looking at today, we need to put the instruction of abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good under the umbrella of one anothering in Christian gospel community. And so let me put it this way. What are the evils that would hinder gospel community that I need to abhor? What are the evils that lurk within, not just the church, but especially within me, that I need to abhor? I have to abhor my selfishness. I have to abhor my pride and vain conceit. All those things within my flesh that are just baked in that would make me say, how can I turn this to make it about me? How can I turn this for my good? How can I turn this for my comfort? How can I turn this for my notoriety and recognition? How can I turn this so that at the end of the day, the room says, that guy's right. I need to abhor that. I need to detest that within myself. I, we need to abhor control and fear and methods of control and fear. They are contrary to being members of one another, as Paul has just said in verse 5. They show a lack of trust 
not only in the people around us, but, but in the Lord and in, the, and in Christ who is at the head of the body. They do not build up those around us, nor do they yield a reliance on the Lord. The need to control will only stymie genuine love. We need to abhor control and fear, just like we do selfishness and pride and vain conceit. And we need to abhor gossip. I'll tell you who's bad at gossip in this church because they're not here. No, just kidding. <laughs> gossip, here's the definition of gossip that I want you to operate with. Gossip is talking about a problem with somebody who's not part of the solution. Gossip is talking about a problem with somebody who's not part of the solution. And it will absolutely tear a community of faith apart. And I know there's many of you in this room who carry scars of gossip in your heart. We need to abhor bitterness, the fleshly contradiction to God's love and forgiveness. We need to abhor our desire for worldly vindication on those who have hurt us. And we need to abhor, and this is, could probably fall under the, the category of selfishness. So we need to abhor confusing Christian community with worldly community, and here's what I mean. I'll be in a Bible study only with people I have enough in common with to be able to talk about things not Bible-related. Gospel community is not a worldly club. Gospel community is not... Oh, we, we like the same teams. We, we share the same uh, politics. We listen to the same music on the secular stations that we don't tell anyone we listen to. Uh, it's more than just having those things in common. It's more than having similar hobbies or vocations. Gospel community is we share eternity in common. We share the blood of Jesus in common. We share the Holy Spirit of God in common because he's in me and he's in you. And gospel community actually shows its power when people from all these other things that would be divided by the world come together in one name and that name is Jesus Christ. I bet... I bet Satan hated it in the 60s when white pastors and black pastors would join hands in prayer. I, I, he still hates it. I bet Satan hated it during the Civil War when there would be pockets of Christians from the North and the South gathering together around the name of Jesus. I bet he absolutely hates it when believers in Ukraine and believers in Russia Pray for the same things. I bet he hates it when Christians from different political factions praise Jesus together. I bet Satan hates all those things. We are not a club of, of superficial affiliation. We are a local expression of the body of Christ. We are a small part 
of what we'll one day we'll see in heaven where every tongue, tribe, and nation is praising the name of Jesus together in their tongues, together as one. I can't wait. And so we hold fast. We abhor those things that will destroy gospel community like Pride, control, bitterness, fickleness, gossip, all those things. And we hold fast to those things that will enhance gospel community, to those things that build into the richness. We hold fast to humility. And this word, hold fast, this is a word we see, uh, we don't see it as much in the New Testament as we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see it that a, that a husband and wife, shall, a husband shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God tells the people of Israel, hold fast to my word and my ways. And here we hold fast to what is good. We cleave to it. We hold on like our life dependence. We hold fast to the significance of each other that we are all made in the likeness of God. We hold fast to a biblical anthropology that says God created humanity in his likeness. Male and female, he created them. And also the Bible teaches that they all fell, that they've all inherited sins, so we don't go, oh, they've sinned, I've never seen this before. But instead we respond in a godly way by speaking truth and extending grace. We hold fast to the example of Christ who made himself nothing taking on the nature of a servant. We hold fast to forgiving one another. We hold fast, instead of controlling one another, to building each other up, equipping each other for ministry, and trusting, and holding things with an open hand. We stay loyal to holiness. And we have a love is not only on brand and loyal to holiness, but is unconditional and sweet. Love one another with brotherly affection. I was once at a wedding where the best man, who was the brother of the groom, said in his speech that the groom was the only person to ever punch him in the face. That's not the brotherly affection we're going for. Loving one another with brotherly affection is not sentimental. It's true. It's honest. It's a loyal, familial love. Our love should reveal our identity as children of God. That we are children together, that we have the same Father. This love is, it is, this brotherly affection is inseparable. In your life, you get to pick one of your family members. Everyone else, you don't get to pick who it is. You don't get to pick your in-laws. You only get to pick your spouse. You don't get to pick your children. You don't get to pick your siblings or, or your parents. You only get to pick the one. In the body of Christ, we get to pick no one. The Lord does that for us. And we are tied to one another as family, inseparable, because we didn't create the bond. The Lord created that bond for us. And as much as we need to know our individual identity in Christ, we just as desperately need to apply that identity in Christ to each other. 
Hello, brother in Christ. Hello, sister in Christ. And, and referring to each other and thinking of one another is in the, within the family of God, the family that is eternal. When we love each other with brotherly affection, it means that our love does not require any achievement on the part of the one we're loving. They don't earn the right to become our sibling, just like we didn't earn the right to become theirs. It's harmonious and unified without necessarily being unanimous. And I would argue on the musical side that harmonious is much more exciting to listen to than unanimous. It embraces the bond of Christ. So that when we see each other, we don't just see a person who goes to church with us, a person who's in adult Bible fellowship with us, a person who's in our Bible study group, a person who we're serving alongside in the nursery, but we see someone who Christ died for. And we look at them through that lens. You're someone Jesus Christ died for. You're someone he gave his life for. You're someone, my brother in Christ, who has put his faith in Christ, and I couldn't be more pleased to be in the room with you. Sometimes this family language in the Bible can be tough for us. Because some of us have had some pretty bad dads. Some of us have had some pretty bad brothers. Let us remember that this family that we're called into is not like your earthly family. This is a fully redeemed family. In this side of heaven, yes, there will be hurt. But there will also be the day in glory when there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more brokenness and we get to experience and enjoy the goodness of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Finally, it is a love that is appropriately preferential. Outdo one another in showing honor. What a great word to a dog-eat-dog society. That we would not try to one-up one another for our own gain, that, that we would seek to outdo one another in showing honor. And this is such a weird verse for the Western mind that does not, our culture does not thrive on honor. Our culture does not seek to honor people well. But one of the things I love about this is it disallows us from saying we love each other without having action. I can't let my love be genuine and not honor the people around me at the same time. It's impossible. Now, this outdoing one another in honor, this is completely different than um, a false humility. Paul's instruction to the church in Romans and to all believers is not to go around saying, oh, these other people are better than me. Oh, you're a much better Christian than me. It's not to feign humility. That, again, is contrary to having a genuine love. I can't genuinely love you while pretending to cheapen who God has made me. Nor can I abhor what is evil while pretending to be more humble than I actually am. 
Instead, instead of trying to cheapen ourselves to give honor to someone else, let us, in all that God has made us to be, give preferential treatment to each other instead of seeking it for ourselves. This is a point that Dr. Jones was very helpful for me on, that we would seek to prefer the people around us. This builds on what Pastor Adam shared with us last week, recognizing that we belong to one another, that we use the grace God has given us to benefit one another, that if God has given me a specific gift, that I would not hoard that gift for myself, but that I would freely use that gift among other believers and for the benefit of the body of Christ. It is coming together with the hope of serving someone else Because none of us can ever know when we show up here just exactly what kind of week the other people had. So seeking to care, seeking to listen, seeking to, to serve, to help someone finish a task. Take someone out to lunch to hear their story. Find someone to join a Bible study with. Inviting people into your life, being hospitable with that, being available to be invited into someone else's. One of the best examples I see in Scripture about doing one another in honor is, of course, Jesus, but specifically when he washed the disciples' feet. Here they are, they're gathered together in the upper room. Jesus is on the eve of like the most important day of human history. No big deal. And what he does is at the beginning of the meal, he sets aside his cloak, he wraps a towel around, and he goes about taking on the lowest, least desirable posture and position of service and washing their disgusting feet. And he wasn't doing it going like, oh, you guys are so filthy. Oh, man, you know... Thomas, would it, would it kill you to get in the cracks a little bit? You know, he's not, he's not doing that. He knows their feet need washed. It's a big deal to have their feet washed. Nobody else wants to do it. These guys don't even want to wash their own feet. And Jesus, he doesn't say, let me pretend that I'm an intern servant let me pretend that I'm not worthy of you guys to sit at your table. Let me pretend, that, fill in the blank. He doesn't do that. He doesn't play that insincerity game. He doesn't disseminate his love for them. But what he does is he goes, I am the son of God. Tomorrow I'm going to die on the cross for your wretched sins. I'm going to feel a tension in my relationship with my father that I've never felt before as the sin, your sin, and the sin of all humanity is dumped out on me. And the father turns his back and I'm going to have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While I'm nailed to a cross, having my back completely torn open. I'm going to be doing that tomorrow, but please let me take a minute and wash your feet. He doesn't even do that. What he says is he goes, I have all of that tomorrow. And I'm going to set all of that down 
and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to wash your feet because I'm pointing you to a greater washing that I need to do in your heart. He doesn't pretend to be anyone else. He is fully Jesus the whole time. In fact, at the end, he goes, look, I'm your master. You're not better than me. So you need to go and do the same thing I do. And so as we come together, we don't come together and say, I don't know if you guys realize this, but my job is pretty important. The view out of my office is pretty fantastic. We don't come together boasting in any kind of worldly accomplishments. We come together boasting in Christ, seeking to build one another up in love, seeking to outdo one another in honor, to care for one another. And this outdoing one another in honor, this is what takes gospel community to a place where it blows worldly community completely out of the water. I find that when I'm with my Christian friends and I do some little thing of service, just getting them, like just doing little things, getting them water, uh, I'm going here, let me take that for you. It's, they're, they're grateful and it's no big deal. And among my non-Christian friends, they're like, why would you ever do that for me? What is going on? This, these are two really pretty short verses. But when they are lived out, the impact is profound. And let me finish by saying this. In order to live these out, we absolutely have to remember verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12. That by the mercies of God, therefore, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. If I try to love genuinely and I don't do so because of God's mercy, I'm going to burn out and get bitter. If I seek to abhor evil and hold fast to what is good, and I'm not doing it by the mercy of God and as a reaction to the saving grace of God, I'm, going to get, I'm just going to be overwhelmed by my own guilt and burn out. And if I try to outdo one another in honor, I try to be brotherly and all that, and I'm not continually looking at and being informed and instructed by the mercy of God, It's just going to fizz out. Let our love be genuine. Let us abhor evil, hold fast to good, have brotherly affection, outdo one another in honor because of the immense and immeasurable mercy that God in heaven has given to us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your, your infinite grace, that you are rich in mercy and grace, and you spend that richness on us, that you spend that richness on our spiritually dead souls to make us alive together in Christ. That you would unite us, that you would make us your children, God. Lord, you've used your mercy for us Lord, I pray that our lives would be glorifying to you, that our, our community here at Westchester would be glorifying to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.